Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. I learned to skate when I was about seven or eight on an indoor rink. I loved it, but I never thought about skating outside because, well, it's Vancouver and it's just too warm. But I was able to embrace that experience when I moved to Ottawa in my 20s and glided happily along the Rideau Canal. A warming world is now melting the magic of a winter skate for a lot of people. But fear not, there are those fighting back, finding ways to both help the climate and reinvent the skating rink, and even helping indoor arenas with all those nasty fumes and funky scents smell better. No pun intended, but it's a breath of fresh air. And in the quest to find solutions in all shapes, sizes, and characters, we discovered a troop of performers on ice trying to deliver a message to act on global warming. If we can get drag queens out of heels and into skates, maybe we could actually do something about the climate crisis. Also, a story about a neighborhood that's come together to help each other's homes become climate friendly. Now that's neighborly. And it all has to do with pocket change. Welcome to What on Earth? We bring you a world of climate solutions. I'm Laura Lynch. Now, what does that music make you think of? It's no secret that Canadian winters are getting warmer overall, though there are still enough blasts of cold to make people wish for spring. But the changes, both here and overseas, are putting something cherished at risk. Outdoor skating rinks that enthusiasts love for exercise, hockey, and just plain fun. Ottawa's Winterlude Festival just wrapped up, and for the first time without any skating on the Rideau Canal, because the ice wasn't ready. And in Montreal? There's a very famous pond called Beaver Lake, which is in Mount Royal Park. That was historically where people went to skate. Now the municipal government maintains a refrigerated rink adjacent to it because you cannot rely on winter temperatures to keep the pond cold enough. Robert McClemon is a professor of environmental studies at Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, and he's with the group Rinkwatch. He says there's a paradox and a problem. As everyone tries to keep the ice from turning to slush in warmer temperatures, the very methods used can contribute to climate change. If the power is being generated through diesel generators or something like that, that's really bad. Uh, and the refrigerants that they use in outdoor rinks are themselves actually a greenhouse gas. So if they're not captured properly and reused, if they escape into the atmosphere they do contribute to global warming, albeit in absolute terms a relatively small amount. But nonetheless, it's moving in the opposite direction that we want to be going in, which is to have a nice natural ice surface to skate on uh, that doesn't require any energy or greenhouse gases. Some cities in Europe are opting for roller rinks instead because of energy costs and environmental concerns. But there are also efforts underway to chill the ice 
and pare the use of fossil fuels way down. And there's nowhere better to see it in Canada than right in my backyard, in the shipyards district of North Vancouver. I went there for a visit. Over the long weekend in February, hundreds of people, kids, parents, young couples out on a date, flocked to an outdoor skating rink on the waterfront in North Vancouver. Some seem never to have stepped out on blades before. The tentative strokes, arms fanned out for balance, those are telltale signs. And that's understandable. This part of the country isn't an outdoor skating haven given the mild winters. On top of that, this arena that opened in 2019 with a spectacular seaside view is even more unusual. So it's something that some people like to boast about. I'm Linda Buchanan, the mayor in the city of North Vancouver. The mayor made certain to meet me here to act as cheerleader-in-chief for a project that at first glance could have been seen as a bit crazy. Did anyone ever say to you, are you nuts? <laughs> Why are you putting an ice rink down in Vancouver outside beside the ocean? Um, probably there was a, probably a few, but I think, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, we need to be, you know, as we look to the future and we, we have this, you know, big issue uh, that we're currently in. It's not going away. And so we always have to be looking at what's, what can we be doing currently, what's coming in terms of technology, and how do we advance that and push and push those boundaries. That was the issue, how to ensure the ice would stay frozen without using huge amounts of climate-busting fossil fuels. My name's Karen Magnuson. And what's your job here? I'm the chief engineer for the city of North Vancouver, so responsible for all of the outdoor spaces in our city. Magnuson knows the inside-outs of this, the kilometers of piping, the engineering expertise, and the challenges. We're certainly learning how to operate it. We can operate this ice rink up to 15 degrees Celsius, so on days when we have, um, you know, those unseasonably warm spring days, sometimes we do struggle a little bit um, in learning those boundaries of our temperature controls, but through a retractable roof system and through being able to shield the ice surface, um, we've had very few down days. Today is a chilly day, so no worries about melting ice. Instead, the focus can be on the unique things about the system that helped the city in its quest to eliminate carbon pollution. I'll let Magnuson describe it. Some of the challenges, obviously, are having an outdoor skating rink in a temperate climate. Um, so a lot of the things that we try to address through this design is how to create an ice rink as efficiently as possible. So what we have within the ice surface is a concrete um, floor that has embedded glycol loops in it. So it's a cooling system that allows the, the um, heat to be pulled out of the ice and so the water surface freezes into an ice surface. What's really unique about this system is the chiller that we have that creates that cooling loop is a CO2 chiller, so incredibly efficient and allows a higher temperature to come into it and to drop to have the lower temperature that's needed to actually create ice in an outdoor environment. The really neat thing about what we've been able to do here is as you're reducing the heat of that cooling loop, you have waste heat and you need somewhere for it to go. And so we have the Lonsdale Energy Corporation district heating system in this neighborhood. So we actually take the waste heat from the ice rink and put it into that system. So that heat, which is waste here, becomes beneficial heat for homeowners in the neighborhood. So it becomes heat that allows them to heat their hot water in their homes and to create space heating. But does that make this rink 
carbon neutral? I wouldn't say carbon neutral, but it's certainly much more efficient than a standalone ice rink. So we um, expect that this system using a CO2 chiller and the waste heat exchange be two to three times more efficient than what you would see in a standard ice rink. So all the water traveling through all the pipes being cooled by CO2, which is better for the environment than other chemical refrigerants. And in all of this, there's relatively little natural gas used. And all that harvested heat ends up being used, not wasted or spewed into the air. But the city isn't stopping at the waterfront. Listen to this. So we're always looking for additional waste heat energy sources that can be brought in looking to electric boilers, geothermal heat exchanges. We're exploring opportunities for ocean cooling. So that would allow us to send um, uh, loops into the ocean and be able to do a heat exchange through the temperature of the ocean so that we could bring heat back into the district energy system. Sorry, I can see I'm, I'm <laughs> maybe not explaining it as clearly. That, yeah, because the ocean is cold. What is the, how does the that... ocean's cold, but in every time where you have a heat exchanger, it's not so much that you need the ocean to be hot, you just need the temperature that you're trying to get to be different. So it's about creating that temperature differential. So for instance, if we took um, the ocean, you know, traditionally stays at between four and 14 degrees, um, Celsius around these parts and so we're just looking for being able to extract a couple degrees of temperature differential so that we can bring that heat concentrated in our system and then allow it through a heat exchanger in a building to be further extracted concentrating and it's remarkable what you can do in order to create um, a, a really tangible source of heat that can then heat these buildings. In addition to all that heat in the summer, the water in the system can be and is used for cooling by stripping out the excess cold. Mayor Buchanan has stayed close as we've been talking, and she's been talking to other mayors about what the city has been doing. It's been a smashing success. So we have record numbers of people that continue to come down. I mean, we're in mid-February, Although we are having a winter blast coming, so we're technically still in winter, so people are coming. It will stay open till the end of March, so to carry us over through spring break. But we have at capacity um, every weekend for sure. And then through the week, we have tons of people that come down, school groups, preschool groups, seniors that come down when it's quieter to, to skate. In just a little while, the rink will be cleared and flooded. And in case you were wondering, of course, it's an electric Zamboni doing the work. I'll be talking more about those electric Zambonis a little later on. But first, I think it's time for a show within our show. And this week, with the subject matter, it has to be an ice show, of course. One that puts climate center stage but in a way I'm betting you've never seen before. There are drag queens playing the roles of oil, nature, and carbon offsets, and a penguin moonlighting as a corporate mascot on the ice. They're all part of Beards on Ice, created by the Bearded Ladies Cabaret in Philadelphia. But here's the thing. On opening night, the show's warning about a warming climate was transformed into an unexpected and unwelcome reality for the performers. So we reached out to two of the creators to find out what happened. 
My name is David Devan, and I'm the general director and president of Opera Philadelphia and a performer um, with uh, the Bearded Ladies When on Ice, and my pronouns are he and him. Hi, I'm John Jarbeau. I use she, her pronouns. I'm the artistic director of the Bearded Ladies Cabaret. I play Miss Homo Sapiens in the Beards on Ice show, and I also directed it and co-wrote it. So David and John, hello. 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 Great to be here. Okay, John, Beards on Ice is your brainchild. What inspired you to create a drag show that's focused on climate change? I think, you know, sometimes ideas come from an issue and sometimes ideas come from an impulse or a pleasure. And honestly, uh, David and I have been friends for years uh, before beautifully running opera companies. David was a nationally competitive pair skater in Canada. And so we go skating every single year and we were dreaming about what oh, one day we'll do an ice show. And when I thought about what the content of that ice show should be, I was thinking about and talking with the Bearded Ladies team about making a climate change themed show. There's something really ironic about doing a climate change themed show on an artificial ice rink. And the premise that we came up with, it's the climate change issue is so impossible, almost as impossible as getting drag queens to skate. <laughs> so if we, can, <laughs> if we can, in under an hour, get a bunch of drag queens to skate on ice beautifully, then maybe, perhaps maybe, we can solve climate change in under an hour. Um, hey, so, in under an hour, congratulations. And just a point, I mean, it turns out it's not that hard to get drag queens to skate. Um, <laughs> How about to when skate we were well? Ready for, when we were getting ready for the show, one of my um, fellow fossil fuels, Cole, um, we were going around the circle saying what our skating experience was. And, and, and Cole said, oh, skates, I've never been on them. And I was like, oh, my goodness, this is going to be like the longest <laughs> show of my life. And she just glides around like there's no tomorrow. And it turns out, I think, when your center of gravity is super high by with uh, stilettos and you have to um, run around, um, turns out you can glide on skates. Not that hard. <laughs> okay. I'm glad to hear that because you've got an audience there watching you. Yeah, David, maybe you can give us a little bit of, of an idea of what happens in the show. Yes, I'm hearing about the characters now. I understand Cole is a character and oil and... So maybe what actually happens? What does the audience see? Yeah, well, of course, I'm a fossil fuel, so I will center my um, conversation about me um, and uh, everything <laughs> in my gravitational uh, world. So, you know, uh, poor Miss Homo sapiens is um, having some struggle skating as she hits the ice and needs to muster some energy um, and some power to really figure out how to control the be on control on the ice and so she relies on the things that she gets her power from and this is our her three friends coal natural gas and oil and um, it turns out oil actually picks her up and uh, starts doing spiral sequences and everything starts to change until the glacier makes an entrance singing celine dion of course and uh, the fossil fuels myself included with hair dryers dismantle the glacier um through the costume leaving them costumeless on the ice and drag them off that's how things start <laughs> and which celine dion is it 
My heart will go on. Like, oh, for sure. And, and <laughs> yes, right. And, and the well, and that... and and Miss Miss Homo Sapien sings. You light up my life uh, for oil. <laughs> oh gosh, you guys. <laughs> yeah, the the premise is to bring, and I feel like we're feeling this as we're talking. We're partnering with a bunch of climate justice groups: Philadelphia Climate Works, Penn Environment, Philadelphia Thrive, Philly Jobs for Justice. Physicians for Social Responsibility, all of these organizations. And what we're hearing from the climate activists that we're talking to is like, oh, it feels so good to have some joy and absurdity brought into this conversation. It's really a silly piece about how humanity is an addict. We're addicted to, to fossil fuels. You know, once the glacier melts and humanity realizes that fossil fuels are maybe not sustainable friendships, not renewable friendships, she um, kneecaps them with a crowbar <laughs> to get them off the ice <laughs> and then thinks she's won and then the power goes out in the rink. We turn off all the lights in the rink. We're like, oh no, maybe we need, maybe we, we do need a little energy just to get us going through the ice show. Maybe what we could do is do a collective action. We could collect, oh, I don't know, we'll collect your money. And so we collect the audience's money to pay for the carbon that we're using <laughs> um, to make the ice show happen. And that becomes a number where there's a very young, brilliant skater, David Shapiro, who's dressed exactly like me, and I skate behind a curtain. And then David skates out, does all the tricks, skates behind the curtain, I pop out, and I take carbon credit for it, um, for all the tricks. Um, <laughs> Your first show, though, didn't go as planned. John, can, can you tell us about what happened? Yeah, I mean, we've been rehearsing for weeks. The weather was a combination of in the, you know, like high teens in Celsius, or around 17 degrees Celsius. Um, and what happens when the sun's shining down on the ice is the top becomes slush. Um, and that then mixed with some warm rain, and it was dangerous to skate. We couldn't actually use the ice. So we had to cancel the opening night of our climate change themed drag ice show because of climate change. Did, did it feel sort of like you guys were getting a, a message from the universe or a sign? I, I found it to be really humbling. I mean, it was absurd. It made me laugh. I was disappointed because we've been working with these amazing Bearded Ladies performers and the Delaware River Waterfront Corporation for weeks to like make this happen. This has never happened in Philadelphia before, this drag I show. And we had all these climate justice groups coming to table. So it felt very sad to postpone, but it was also speaking to the seriousness of the issue. And I think it's been a, the irony of it has been useful in, I think, getting the message out about the show. And ideally, at the end of the game, we want to have people more involved in the everyday climate justice work that's happening in Philadelphia and realizing that climate justice is, is not just about fossil fuels. It's also about racial justice. It's also about the increased houselessness in the city. It, it's about economics. It's, it's so much bigger of an issue. Um, so hopefully some of that, some of this ironic <laughs> closure of our opening night can open some doors to some deeper engagement with the material, which in, in the end is the whole goal. Art is a means to this end. Now, we, we touched on this already, but I just want to again zoom out for a minute because climate anxiety can touch so many people, can sometimes make them feel powerless, make them feel alone. David, what, what does the art of drag have to teach people about the power of bringing issues like this to center stage? Yeah, I mean, you know, um, drag has this amazing um, capability of... Um, because in its extreme, it can deal with things with a camp level that um, mm -hmm. 
lets down your guard and brings you into a moment and a space and then sort of wallops you, <laughs> can wallop you um, with the actual, with the truth, um, because it breaks things down. And I think um, drag artists have done this for ever since there was drag and that and, and they bring truth to things uh, by creating a sort of a artificial world for you to inhabit and let down your guard on your day to day. And I think doing that on ice um, just brings a whole other level to it, um, uh, which is unforeseen. Um, and also it's, you know, um, sort of anything that's virtuosic, um, cause these, these Queens are singing. Um, so, you know, singing and while on ice and in drag just has you leave your office life behind and whatever problems you were having with the world and just uh, allows you to be fully present in the moment, both with joy and then, you know, truth. And when you think you've spoken to this already so well, John, what, what to you is the role of humor, joy, absurdity when it comes to grappling with climate change? I mean, and I'm learning this from uh, the collaborators that I'm working with. And I think, I think one of the things about, you know, climate change is that we can't do anything as individuals. We have to see ourselves as a collective, which is why it's so important to feel the feelings as a group, um, however multifaceted they are. I think oftentimes in a, you know, patriarchal white supremacist colonial kind of bubble, the answers were given to the questions of like, how do we survive? How do we deal with climate change are in the lens of white supremacy in the lens of capitalism, in the lens of patriarchy. And I think the absurdity that we're trying to bring to the end of the show where there's a polar bear singing, I am a walrus, you know, and I'm like dancing, ice dancing with a corporate penguin mascot, like that absurdity is ideally breaking that structure and offering different questions and different answers and saying the thing that we're all thinking in the silliest possible way, but as David is saying, like bringing truth, truth into the room. And it is funny and it is not funny all yeah. at the same time. And I, I don't, I think if we don't laugh, we don't take off our armor. Um, and it can be hard in a, in, in a city landscape where everyone's dealing with a lot. We're still in a pandemic. Like how do you get people to get rid of the politeness, get rid of the, um, the kind of armor that they build up throughout the day, how do you get them to, to listen to something? Well, the first thing you do is you show them a beautiful costume, you sing them an amazing song, you make them giggle and laugh. And then that's how the Trojan horse works. <laughs> you know, you show them the horse and then the truth can be mingled in that and you can still laugh. You can still laugh, you can still be human through acknowledging the radical crisis that we're in. Um, and the great opportunity we have as a as a species to come together and like it's amazing that like i see david skate like david's actually a skater i see him skate and spin and i'm amazed i'm like humans are so virtuosic if we can do this can't we can't we figure this out can't we get rid of our addiction and i know that's reductive um and silly but uh, there's something to it. It's not silly for me, John. I'm doing this at 60. <laughs> it's <a> miracle. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> just to put it all in perspective, uh, <laughs> with a two-foot um, oil garrick on my head, um, uh, you know, come on. 
Um, uh, so, yes. <laughs> well, listen, you two, you've given me such a great laugh talking about all of this and, and, and a lot to think about. And I just wanted to thank you both so much for talking to me. Thank you so much. So great being here. Take care. I really did have such a good time talking to David and John, not just because it's funny, but also because they've taken their own passion and abilities and talents and turned it into something that they could use to make awareness of climate change more accessible for people. And it's great finding people like that to come on the program and talk about it because it's all over the place. And that's something that we actually regard with a great deal of respect on this program. So if you're doing something as well, doesn't really matter what it is, let us know. Email us earth at cbc.ca. In the latest What on Earth newsletter, you can read about how sales of heat pumps are on the rise. They surpassed sales of gas furnaces in the United States in 2022, according to the Air Conditioning, Heating and Refrigeration Institute. And you can subscribe to have the What on Earth newsletter delivered to your inbox every week. Coming up on our show, neighbors helping neighbors figure out how to get heat pumps and start other climate-friendly home retrofits. I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. You're listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch. Okay, our next skating story takes us indoors. An arena is an environment you take in with all of your senses. There are hockey players in colorful jerseys speeding across the ice. The bang and echo of the puck slamming against the boards. The cold air against your face. And the smell of... Okay, actually, that's probably not the best part. But the air in a lot of indoor arenas in Canada is fresher than it used to be. And that's thanks to action on climate change and a new breed of electric vehicle. Science and climate reporter Emily Chung is here to tell us more. Hello. Hi, Laura. So on this show, we talk a lot about electric cars and electric trucks. But you are here to talk about something else. Yes, electric ice resurfacers like Zambonis. Oh, I mean, you know what? I'm sure it was only a matter of time before they became electric. So tell us more about it. Well, as part of their climate change plans right now, a lot of municipalities are trying to cut emissions by electrifying all their vehicles. That includes Mississauga, Ontario, home of the Port Credit Memorial Arena, where we're hearing the Mississauga Chargers junior hockey team practicing. The arena was designed in the 1950s, and it has a gorgeous barrel-vaulted ceiling made of laminated Douglas fir that arches overhead. That's where I caught up with acting city manager Sherry Lichterman. 
to the extent that we can electrify our fleet, whether that's buses or parks vehicles, uh, mowers, and of course ice resurfacers, we want to switch over to electric. And that of course moves us away from um, the internal combustion engines, away from other types of fuel, pollution, um, and of course it's, uh, it's uh, a more climate friendly solution for our ice rinks. All right, Mississauga is switching to electric Zambonis, among other vehicles. Yes, they're about halfway through switching over all 22 of them and just added the one at Port Credit Memorial Arena last fall. I had a chance to see it in action. You to turn her on. So there are several brands of ice resurfacers in Canada, but this one was literally a Zamboni, the one you're probably most familiar with. It's white, and it looks just like a regular Zamboni, but with no gas tanks attached. And as it smooths and shines the ice, you can hear it makes a humming sound, which I'm told is quieter than the gas-powered version. Oh, that's definitely quieter than, you, than the motors you hear roaring around with the Zamboni on a, on a traditional rink. Yeah, for sure. It also has a big sticker on the side that reads, I'm electric, and lets people know that the emissions cut by the new fleet will be equivalent to taking 255 cars off the road. Sherry Lichterman, who is also the chair of Parks and Recreation Ontario, says electric ice resurfacers aren't just a trend in her city. We're seeing across the province, and I think our, um, you know, our major vendors of this equipment are telling us that this is what uh, most cities are ordering now. And so there's high demand, just like there is for electric vehicles. Yeah, and there's obvious climate benefits in switching to electric, but, but what else is driving this interest? Sorry for the pun. <laughs> well, unlike other vehicles, ice resurfacers often operate indoors, and when they burn fuel like natural gas or propane, they generate indoor air pollution. Here's part of my conversation with Aaron Wilson, a Health Canada researcher who studied pollution in arenas. Well, the pollution in ice arenas, what you're usually seeing is uh, NO2 or nitrogen dioxide and CO or carbon monoxide. These are emissions from ice resurfacers that run on fossil fuels or use combustion coming out the exhaust pipe, basically. And NO2 is the same pollutant that people are concerned about with gas stoves. Okay, we've covered the health impacts of gas stoves on the show before, and it's actually been in the news again lately. But what, what can you say about the health impacts of those traditional Zambonis? Well, we all know that carbon monoxide can cause acute poisoning. Malfunctioning ice resurfacers and poor ventilation have been blamed for arenas being shut down and even hospitalizations for carbon monoxide poisoning, although I couldn't find any deaths attributed to the machines. And as for NO2 or nitrogen dioxide, it's known to trigger asthma, which is unusually common in hockey players. And researchers think that's because of exposure to air pollution combined with cold air and vigorous exercise. Nitrogen dioxide has been linked to clusters of respiratory illnesses. There was one recently published scientific paper about a case in BC where a man in his 50s was hospitalized after a hockey practice. And then it turned out 11 of his 15 teammates had also fallen ill. One of the contributing factors listed was the use of an older model machine to flood the ice. That is scary, but th those are also extreme cases. But how badly does it affect the typical levels in arenas? Well, Aaron Wilson's team at Health Canada, along with the Saskatchewan Health Authority, took measurements at 16 arenas in Ottawa and Saskatchewan to find out. Between 2017 and 2020, they put monitors at different places around the arenas and measured levels of pollutants for seven days in a row. So the good news is that carbon monoxide wasn't a problem. 
But levels of nitrogen oxides were sometimes above Health Canada's short-term exposure limits at 7 out of the 16 arenas. They tended to be lowest in the morning, which is good news for anyone with a 6 a.m. ice time, but they rose throughout the day as the resurfacing machine did its job over and over. Levels peaked in the evening and did drop overnight, but only partway. That is a real problem. What, what about simple things like opening doors or windows? I mean, better ventilation? Would that help? They tried that, and it did help, but in some arenas more than others. It did also mess up the temperature inside the arena, though, and sometimes people complained about that. Health Canada does now recommend extra ventilation and monitoring for pollutants, but its top recommendation was the one it found to be most effective, getting rid of the gas ice resurfacers and replacing them with electric ones. Wilson says there was one arena where NO2 was above Health Canada guidelines multiple times. When we switched to electric, it was continuously at or below the outdoor limits, down 10 to 20 times by switching over to an electric very quickly. So it was a great way to remove the pollution in a building. So that's good news, but but EVs can still be pretty pricey. Is it the same for the EVs that are used on the ice? Yes, they are more expensive. A typical fossil fuel one costs about $100,000, and an electric one is about $50,000 more. But because of the lower fuel and maintenance costs, the electric ones are expected to break even after about eight years, according to the Ontario Recreation Facilities Association. Also, some provinces such as BC and Alberta are offering funding to offset the cost. I talked to three different companies that sell these machines in Canada, and they all say demand for electric is growing across the country. The Ontario Recreation Facilities Association says that about a quarter of the roughly 1,000 indoor rinks in its province now use electric ice resurfacers. So this is starting to sound like a trend, Emily. It's sounding like there's a shift underway. Are there any barriers, though? Well, there are the higher upfront costs, as I mentioned, and because of concerns about wasting resources, especially taxpayer money, ice arenas generally don't want to replace their ice resurfacers unless they're at the end of their lifespan. Now, there is a Canadian company that has come up with a solution to that too. CanEV in Parksville, BC, which offers conversion kits to electrify existing gas ice resurfacers. Its technology has been used in a few BC communities, such as Nanaimo and Langford, and the company says it'll soon start marketing in the rest of the country. Up until recently, though, there has been some hesitation to use the electric technology in certain rinks. Is that because it's a new technology that some people consider to be unproven? Not exactly. It's actually been around for a while. Zamboni unveiled its first model at the 1960 Winter Olympics in Northern California, But it didn't start selling a commercial battery-powered model until almost 20 years later, in 1978. Now, Resurface, a Canadian company, actually released a plug-in model in 1989, and it used outlets in the ceiling. I've seen photos, and it's wild. Until recently, most electric ice resurfacers used a lead-acid battery, like the one in a gas-powered car. And as with previous generations of cars, you had to manually water the battery during charging. And that released hydrogen, so you had to have some ventilation... Newer versions no longer need to be watered and are easier. A few years ago also, thanks to advances in EV technology, lithium-ion battery ice resurfacers hit the market. So those are lighter, they charge faster, and it's as simple as plugging them in. That's made it possible to use them in places like the Port Credit Memorial Arena. And that brings me back to their Zamboni. You can hear it now. In that arena, the ice resurfacer has to climb up a ramp to get onto the ice surfaces. 
and then it has to go back down the ramp, and then it has to make a sharp 90-degree turn at the bottom of the ramp to go outside to dump its load of snow. So operators were a bit nervous about all those maneuvers with a heavy lead-acid battery, but the lighter lithium battery is working for them. Okay, but what about the rink users? Are they noticing a difference? Well, we did talk to the coach of the Mississauga Chargers, the hockey team which was practicing in the arena when we visited. His name is Joe Washcrook, and here's what he had to say. You know, before, back in the old days when I started, you could always smell the propane from the old Zambonis, and that wasn't a very good hockey rink smell. So, no pun intended, but it's a breath of fresh air. (laughs) Hey, that sounds like an intended pun to me, Emily. (laughs) (laughs) I I think he was trying to be funny. Yep. Um, I have to say, personally, I also thought it was a pretty fresh-smelling rink. And I find it interesting that, as with other initiatives to deal with climate change, replacing gas-powered ice resurfacers with electric ones has so many other potential benefits, too, especially when it comes to the health of the kids and grown-ups exercising and having fun in our arenas. This is so interesting, and it's great to hear it has so many benefits. Emily Chung, thank you. Thanks, Laura. A bit of climate-related news this week. A report published in the journal Environmental Science and Technology suggests heavy oil facilities in Saskatchewan are emitting nearly four times more methane than the amount they're reporting to government. The authors of the study say they've done hard measurements as opposed to estimates supplied by industry. Another report, this one from the International Energy Agency, says the world's top 1% of emitters produce over 1,000 times more CO2 than the bottom 1%. And another international organization, the World Bank, may soon have a new leader from India. If Ajay Banga is appointed, he's expected to be more focused on climate change than his predecessor, David Malpass. Malpass faced criticism after he said he didn't know if fossil fuels caused climate change. He later apologized. Deep in the east end of Toronto is a cluster of townhouses and older homes that make up a tight-knit neighborhood called The Pocket. It's not just any neighborhood. It's a community of people committed to reducing emissions by retrofitting their homes together. Right now, more than 20 households are part of a project they've coined, Pocket Change. Sorry for the pun there. They share knowledge about how to make their homes more energy efficient and electrified. Paul Dowsett is a sustainable architect and a resident of The Pocket, and joining him is his neighbour Raj Sandhu, who's in the midst of her own home retrofits. They're here to share how Pocket Change works and offer some advice to our listeners. Hello. Hello. Hi, Laura. Raj, you you moved into the neighbourhood in 2016 and then into your current home in 2019. Tell me what you loved and maybe not loved so much about your home. Um. There were a lot of things we loved about the house. We loved, of course, the neighborhood and our ability to stay here. We um, There's so much natural light um, in the house, which was amazing. There's so much space. Um, it's very well located. We have a, a nice size yard. I think what we didn't love about the house was it, it was going to need a, a lot of work. There's there a lot of renovations um, that needed to be done because it's quite an old house. Was it kind of leaky and, and not very, um, um, let's see, energy secure? <laughs> 
Yep, it is very leaky um, and not very energy secure for sure. In addition to that, I just needed um, a full interior renovation as well. Right. Okay. So tell me what moment stands out for you as you started to retrofit. You know, it's interesting because I reached out to Paul, um, not about my house in particular, but um, just about net zero uh, related to work. Um, and I had heard about the pocket community. I'd seen the signs around. And so I think what stood out is we had already ordered our windows by then. And when Paul came over to sort of have a look, he made some recommendations of things that we could have done differently. Um, so I think that was when I, I sort of realized it's more than just doing the things. It's not just getting new windows and just putting in the insulation. There's there's a lot of um, technical know-how behind that. Um, and I think that's what stood out for me. And that's the huge part of the value of this uh, community is figuring, you don't have to do all that figuring on your own. Okay, Paul, pretend that mm-hmm. I'm I'm a resident of the pocket. What, what would be my first steps in, in getting my home done, getting this retrofit started? So first steps would be contacting me as the retrofit coach. You know, I have a, an email address that's published on the Pocket Change Project website. And what I would then do is have an initial conversation with you and find out in broad strokes what your goals are. You know, are you know how far along this journey are you interested in going? What do you understand about this? And just give you the basic lay of the land right from the get-go. Then what we would do is we would set you up to get an energy audit. And this is through an NRCAN, Natural Resources Canada, certified energy auditor. And that is the first step to get you on the path to government and utility rebates and grants. So that's a necessary piece. It's also a piece that gives us quite a bit of information about your house. And what normally happens is the energy auditor hands this document to the homeowner, and then the homeowner is supposed to do something with that. The trouble is what's written on the report means something to someone like me with the technical knowledge to understand it, it does not mean anything to your average homeowner. And so then through the pocket change project, we've added another piece to that. We then take the information from the energy audit report and we take your list of desires and what you want to do and your ultimate goals and even your budget and we put all of that together into a retrofit roadmap and that seems to be the key that's missing in general in what is provided by energy auditors certified by Enercan across the country and And that's what we find is the most useful piece to homeowners and i guess that's what makes you the coach that's what exactly. <laughs> I, I, got, I got I got some technical knowledge, and I'm willing to share it. And on average, how much would would all of this cost? Because it's not pocket change, is it? Despite the name, <laughs> it's about six hundred dollars for the energy audit, uh, both the pre and the post, and then the retrofit roadmap is about another seven hundred and fifty. The energy audits are covered through a Greener Homes Canada grant. So that's a rebate that you can get. All right. I just want to ask you one more question, though. And I know that this this answer will vary very much province to province, even sometimes community to community and house to house. But how much would someone be looking at to do the actual retrofitting of their home? Roughly. So, so big, it depends question on how much they're willing to do or, or needing to do. You know, your big goal is to get off the gas, stop your carbon emissions. You just want to replace your gas furnace with a a cold climate air source heat pump 
that's going to run you between twelve and eighteen thousand dollars. If you need to air seal and insulate your house, uh, you know, if you have one of these kind of homes that we have in the pocket, built between nineteen fourteen and nineteen twenty, and very poorly insulated and very air leaky, uh, then you're looking at another thirty-five to sixty-five thousand dollars for that work. That's a, that's a good rough idea, but as I as I acknowledge, there's a lot of different different things that can come into it, including availability yep. of of uh, rebates and grants. Now, Raj, mm-hmm. Raj, what stage are you at with your project now? So we are starting on the exterior to sort of seal up the house from all the leakiness. So we have gotten new windows throughout the house, um, and that alone, you know, that that ran us about forty k. Um, and our next step is that we are going to now um, do the insulation and the cladding on the outside. And so we're, you know, that was meant to happen uh, at the same time as the windows. But as these things go with delays in the windows and delays in sort of getting folks here to to do the outside, we had to wait through the winter. Um, so we've got an extra leaky house for the winter, in fact. But um, And you mean leaky from insulation, not rain? Right. Oh yeah, not right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, so we have the windows done, and we're looking to get the insulation and the exterior cladding done in the spring. And then what's left is: it, are you having a heat pump installed? Yep. Then we will have a heat pump installed, and uh, I'll be calling you, Paul, later because our <laughs> hot water furnace <laughs> is just on the fritz right now. Our hot water heater, so we'll likely get a, a heat pump for the hot water tank sooner than we had anticipated. So that's probably the immediate next step, actually. All right, Coach, that's one for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, Raj, no problem. I'm, wondering, I'm on it. Raj, I'm wondering, though, what's something you you wish you'd known before you even started down this path? Um, I definitely wish I had known that I needed to do the energy audit prior to installing the windows to get the rebates. Um, I did not know that. And so I'm set up for one now. Um, and hopefully we can get some of the other rebates um, around the insulation and the cladding and potentially for the heat pump. Okay. Yeah. And Raj, there's a maximum you know, amount that you can get from the rebates. And so you can max out on it in different ways. So although you didn't get it for the windows, that'll be okay because you will get the maximum value of rebates available to you through the insulation, the air sealing and the air source heat pump. Now that's the thing I wish I had known. I've been like regretting this for the past little while. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, yeah. there, there's an acknowledgement of just how tricky it can be to navigate all of the rebates and the subsidies. Sure. Yes, that's and, and that's only one small part of it all. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> um, Paul, could, despite all of that, and, and uh, credit to you for being there and ready to help, can what you're doing be done in other communities, or, or is it just something special about the pocket? Uh, as, as much as I like to believe that we have you know, magic powers here, uh, I don't think it's exclusive to the pocket, and it shouldn't be. I mean, it needs to happen you know, across the entire city of Toronto where we are and in every other home a- across Canada. You know, we're, we're sitting at the point where you know, the vast majority of the buildings that have been built to date have not been built to the standards that they could and should have been built. And almost every building on the planet needs to be retrofit and taken off burning fossil fuels and electrified with clean electricity. And to that end, we're also wanting to share what we've learned through the Pocket Change Project. 
And so we are in the process of developing what is currently called the Toronto Home Retrofits. We've set our sights on helping other communities across Toronto. We think that's probably big enough for us. But I think that when when we start that help, we'll also figure out ways to roll it out to other communities across Canada and just help those communities and the leaders of those communities to then, you know, we won't go in and help their individual homeowners with quite the same handholding that we're doing here in the pocket. But what we'll do is we'll give the community organizations the tools that they need to then go on and do what we're doing here in the pocket. But, but Paul, here is a really critical question. Do, do they have to come up with their own catchy nickname? <laughs> Are you helping out with that too? <laughs> nope. We, we came up with one and that's all we have to do. Okay, but in, in, all, in all seriousness, what advice would you give? This is for either one of you. Um, to someone outside of your neighborhood, maybe even in another province, who wants to start their own pocket change? Um, That's a great question. We already have a community association. So where you already have some type of community groups, um, you can sort of bring up this topic of net zero, what people are doing to their homes and start to gauge interest and sort of spin it up in the same way that it has here. I think one thing that I think is really important for the success of something like this is to sort of track the data. And, you know, to Paul's earlier point, um, I think having folks in the community who have already done it so they can share what the benefits are. And, you know, those are often beyond financial, you know, for us, just the comfort of the home, like we feel the draft, we can't heat the house um, to get it as warm as we want. So that is certainly a benefit for us. Um, So just being able to have that community level group where you can start to bubble up the awareness and the interest um, and as folks pass through they can sort of share what those benefits are that they're seeing from actually doing the retrofits. If our listeners have questions about starting this kind of initiative in their neighborhood are are you both up for getting some emails? I certainly am. Raj? Yeah absolutely. How good of you. We have a pretty pretty loyal following and they're not shy about getting in touch. So I might be expecting to hear something from them if I was you. But but for now, thank you so much. And Raj, good luck with, with the project as it goes forward. And Paul, to you, good luck as, as you expand the plans for it. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much, Laura. And you heard Paul Dowsett and Raj Sandhu say they are willing to share their insights if you're thinking about starting a similar project in your community. Email us, earth at cbc.ca, and we'll put you in touch. And just a note, Paul does this community coordination work on a volunteer basis, but he's paid for the retrofit roadmaps that he helps with. Now, last week, I had a fascinating conversation with Thea Riofrancos, a political science professor at Providence College in Rhode Island. She says people should think twice before replacing all cars and trucks with electric ones. It'll actually cut emissions faster if we don't try to replicate the car-dependent transportation system as we move into a new energy system. No surprise, a lot of you had plenty to say about how we should rethink our transportation systems. Our producer, Rachel Sanders, has some of your emails. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Laura. So, yeah, our listeners have given this a lot of thought. 
Linda Savory Gordon writes, by having electric passenger trains, there would be a green long distance transportation option over the vast distances in northern Ontario. Right now, our only options are the most polluting modes of transportation, air and road. So we don't have a way to reduce our car dependency. Many of us in northern Ontario want to limit our use of cars to short distances, but we have no choice. David Fright in Nova Scotia shared a paper he wrote about his idea for a more sustainable transportation system, a network of municipally owned passenger shuttles, like taxis in a sense. They'd serve a rapid bus network. David writes, even in the short time it takes me to get to the bus stop and the extra time needed to be early so as to ensure catching the bus, I'll get soaked in even a very light rain. Wet and bedraggled isn't a nice way to spend your day at work. But by combining the taxi and public transit fleets, we have something better, faster and much less expensive than the private automobile. And that provides sustainable transportation even using gas-powered vehicles simply by being so efficient with fuel use. And Lee Thiessen wrote in to caution about using the phrase getting cars off the road. Here's part of what he wrote. As the former climate policy director for the BC Climate Secretariat, I often got the reaction from audiences that, quote, I need my car, there's no transit here, etc. I think the most productive response is to agree with this and to add, you can still reduce your car use get a car off the road, by doubling up on errands or trips, taking one bike trip, etc., and then seeing what develops. Now, Rachel, stay with me, because just before we go, we did get one other message from a listener named James Rooney. He suggested that maybe, just maybe, we need to rethink the name of our show. Now, what on earth could he be talking about? Actually, it is something we realized a long time ago when we created the show, right, Rachel? It is, it yeah. It is, yeah. Yes, as he says, the acronym formed by our name is W-O-E. Whoa. <laughs> it's kind of unfortunate for a show like ours, right? It is. And we, we write it like that all the time. Yeah. I've kind of stopped realizing the meaning of the word. <laughs> okay. But, and the, the other thing is that, that we really don't wallow in woe. We prefer, we kind of prefer to play in the land of solutions and hope. Now, my sister had an idea. She thinks we should just skip one letter, style the acronym as W-E. We, and I kind of like that, since we're all in this together, and it keeps the name of the show as is. What do you think of that? I like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that works. We are. We are all in this together. Right. Yeah. Okay, so our correspondent, Mr. Rooney, suggested this, humanity's only planet Earth, which is hope, of course, but maybe not quite so catchy. It's a bit of a mouthful, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think so. Now, I'm not suggesting we're going to change anything, but I am curious to know what you think. It is a small thing, but especially this week, when we're showcasing skating drag queens, electric Zambonis, and pocket change. Well, to me, that's just about the opposite of woe. So let me know what you think. Email us, Earth at cbc.ca. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you. Can't wait to hear what we uh, hear back on this one. (laughs) And that's it for us this week. If you missed any of today's program, you can listen on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Woe, as they say, or maybe we, was put together by associate producers Danielle Piper and Zoe Yunker, producers Rachel Sanders and Molly Siegel. Special thanks this week to Alice Hopton. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Catherine Rolfson is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.